and be there. Um, it's one of the few places I get to go and speak and no longer feel like a guest, which is a, which is a nice feeling because uh, you, you don't always have to do the prim and proper and the handshakes and the whole hour. You go, you come in and uh, you can have a bit of crack and uh, it's really good and it's been such a blessing. Uh, even Mark and Kathy, like the two of them, just to honour you both, you're absolute gems. I think everybody in church would, would agree with me on that. What you, what you do and what you give and what you sacrifice for these young people is just incredible. And even nights up, up at your house having dinner and dreaming about the weekend and, and, and different things, the, the dreams you have for your young people are, are outside of the box, you know, and, and it's you have a passion to see them step into more of what they have. And uh, I'd encourage you, don't give up, keep going, keep dreaming, keep believing, uh, and the best is yet to come. So yeah, uh, enough of that, I'll, st I'll stop rambling, and, and I guess start speaking. But uh, what I have to share tonight, so I have a, I have a confession. I got a wee text message from Christian during the week, and he's like, oh, Josh, with, with Sunday happening, uh, just wanting to know if you any songs that fit with your theme. And I texted him back, and I was like, I think you've got that wrong. I'm, I'm in Neelam next Sunday, the 17th. And he was like, oh, Mark texted me to say the 10th. And I was like, that's weird. I've been in my diary for the 17th. And I text Mark, and, and lo and behold, it was actually the 10th. And I have no idea where I got the 17th from. But um, with that being said, or at, least I'm, at least I'm here, right? But it could have got awkward. But I, I do feel that, that God's given me a few things to share, and I hope uh, that it'll be a blessing and an encouragement to you. And you can you can take something away from it. If not, uh, hopefully you won't, won't give out to me too hard. But uh, if you turn with me to, to John chapter 11, I want to look. It's a story we all know pretty much inside and out, upside down, left and right. If you've been in church long enough, it's the story of, of Lazarus. Uh, and what happens there. And I'll be honest, it's one of these stories I just keep seeming to come back to and back to and back to as I'm reading because every time I read it, I just notice something different or see um, something just totally amazing. Um, when you go through the story, there's, there's a few different things that happen. So just to set, set the scene, we know Mary and Martha. Um, we know that story really well, but Lazarus is their brother. And he's, he hasn't been too well. Something amazing happens in the first few verses. They send for Jesus. And they don't just say, hey, can you come? Lazarus isn't well. It's so much more personal. They say, Jesus, the one in whom you love is ill. There's nobody saying, hey, Lazarus is sick. It's just, it's just the one in whom you love is ill. And that... I, straight away to me is so powerful because there's no name given. It's just the one who you love. And Jesus knows it's Lazarus. But that in itself is so loaded because when, when they sent for him, why have they sent for Jesus? Because they're expecting a miracle. They're not sending for Jesus to let him know that he's ill just for the sake of letting him know he's ill. They're sending for Jesus because they're expecting that he's going to do something. They're expecting he can fix it. And I think for a lot of us, um, I know for, for myself, before I was a Christian, I became a Christian at 18, I kind of used prayer as like the backup card. Do you know when you've, you've exhausted everything else, you're like, okay, right, God, if you're up there, let, do you know, do you want to fix that for me? And, and it can nearly become this thing where sometimes we use that last resort and we go, ah, everything else has gone wrong, but 
could you do this? And for sometimes we pray without any real expectation that God is actually going to show up and he's actually going to do something. But then there's other times where we can pray and we get, we get really disappointed because we can, we can actually earnestly pray and ask Jesus to come just like they've done and he gets there. And it's too late. Do you know, it says that when you read the text that Jesus actually waited another two days and then he went. And that, to this day, still, like, it blows my mind because he knows he's not going to make it and he knows he's going to die. And he gets there. And the way I play this out in my head as I read it, I can see Martha just coming up to Jesus and challenging him, going, you're late. Because you didn't get here, my brother's dead. You're late. And I, th- I think, I know, if anybody knows me really, really well, they'll know I never show up to anything on time. I'm late for everything. And I always get told, Josh, you're late, what are you doing? And I'm like, ah. But sometimes you're, you're late gets so much more serious. And it's got like a tone of disappointment and being let down. Maybe you promised to do something for somebody and you didn't do it. And you're like, but it's too late now. Ever, ever get that? I've, I've had that. I've said that to people. It's too late now. I should look at it. It's too late. That's nearly what Martha's doing with Jesus. What are you doing? Jesus, like, you're too late. He, he's already there, dead. He's already in the grave. Here's the thing. What do we do with that? I know for me in my life. So today... Um, is Remembrance Sunday. And this afternoon in, in Lurgan, there was a service held. And as part of that service, there's a remembrance from a dad who was shot, who was shot and killed during the Troubles, right? So every, every, every year in the police station, they do a service for all the police officers uh, who were killed during that period. And for years of my life, my attitude to God was but you're not really there because you didn't stop that evil. You didn't give me my miracle. You didn't stop those men from doing that to my dad. You're late. That's what, that's what it became. And there's a bitterness and a resentment. And next thing you know, I'm blaming God for not showing up on time. God, you let me down, you're late. And there's a real danger in that because sometimes God doesn't show up the way we want him to. With this real thing is... As Christians, that we think God works to our schedule. He works to our timetable. And we go, do you know what, God? Do this. And God doesn't do it. And we're like, hang on a second. I I thought we had an agreement here. I thought you told me if I ask, and we start quoting Matthew 7, or like, you know, ask and believe and it'll be given to you. I thought this worked when I asked for things. And we start to blame God for not doing things the way we want it to we blame him for, for showing up late. But I love, I love how Jesus handles uh, Martha in this passage. There's this surreal moment of faith when he reminds her of the bigger picture. He reminds her that he is the resurrection and the life. And he just finishes it. Verse 25, and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall yet live. 
and anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he doesn't just do a full stop. He looks back at her and he's like, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe it? And she's a choice to either carry her resentment for Jesus being late or stick it aside and say, do you know what? I actually do. I believe in it. And as the story goes on, he, he goes and he calls for Mary and he asks to see where Lazarus is buried and they go there and they get there and it's probably one of the most talked about verses in the Bible because it's one of the two shortest. There's another uh, two-word verse in, in Scripture. But, and Jesus, it says Jesus wept when he gets there. And it amazes me to this day when you read through the story because as Jesus gets to the grave and they see him weeping alongside her, like some of the people around him attacked. Like even then, they see Jesus is weeping, he's grieving for this person that he loved and they attack him in that moment and they're like, uh, if this man can open blind eyes, couldn't, couldn't he have stopped him from dying? Again, there's this theme of you're late, you're showing up late, Jesus, you're not on time. You've disappointed us all. There's no point sitting crying about it. He's dead. But he's already told them he's the resurrection and the life. And as we know, he rolls away the stone. And he says, did I not tell you? I love that reminder of how Jesus just reminds us of his promises in that moment. And he calls out Lazarus after thanking the Father. And Lazarus comes out and he walks out alive. And there's no gimmicks, there's no nothing. He just weeps, thanks God for who he is, reminds them that he's the resurrection and the life and calls him out. I was like, okay, Lazarus is alive. Like, honestly, I don't know what I'd do in that moment if I was watching this all happen. Like, would I be cheering in that moment, being like, yeah, Lazarus is alive? Or would I be sitting there going, no, 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 rigged. Not happening. That's not a miracle. They've planned planned it. Maybe Lazarus wasn't dead. You ever, you ever hear that? You hear really amazing stories of how God has worked in people's lives. They've had cancers and they've gone for another MRI and it's disappeared. And they're like, oh, maybe somebody just held their thumb over the first scan and, and that's what's happened. Or, and we, we do that, don't we? We rationalize miracles. We rationalize what God is doing to make it sound like it never happened. We can go so quickly from blaming God for being late or not doing things the way we wanted them. So actually when God does something, to being like, nah, didn't really happen. Um, but here's the thing, raising people from the dead wasn't something that you just find in the New Testament. It's something you find in the Old Testament too. And when you go to First Kings chapter 17, there's an amazing story uh, of Elijah. Does any, anybody know it? No? Few people not, but there's an amazing story of Elijah raising a widow's son from the dead. He'd been staying with this family and different things, and as the story goes, he comes back, and as he gets there, we'll, we'll read it. It's First First Kings seventeen seventeen, and after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Like, can you imagine, like, what's happening in that moment? The son's literally died on the spot. Just like sitting there, he's going, I I don't feel too good. And he's dead. 
I don't, I don't know what I'd do in that moment if I was sitting in the house and the person beside me just dropped dead. Like, what do you do? What, what's your first response? And it amazes me. And again, the woman says to Elijah, what is it you've got against me, O man of God? There's that, there's that blame just pushing it off. There's that you're late moment. What is it you've got against me that you've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause my son to death? And he said there, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper room where he lodged and he laid him on his own bed. And then he cried to the Lord, O oh my Lord God, whom you have brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sword in by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to Elijah and the life of the child came into him again. And he was revived. Can you imagine, like, if you were in that room saying that happened? Elijah carries this dead body, sets him down in the room, and gets on top and stretches himself out over him three times. His face would have been in his face. He would have been breathing life, breathing his breath into this lifeless body, begging God to raise him from the dead. Sure enough, three times later, He comes back to life. Again, all I can think about when I read this story is how messed up and how weird would it be to see somebody like stretching themselves over a dead body. Could you imagine at the end of this service, I was like, do you know what? Let's pray for the sick. And I brought you up to the front and I asked you to lie down and just like, just like, okay, the elders are going to stretch themselves out of you three times and we'll pray and ask, does it feel better? You'd all look at me like I had two heads and going, that boy's a heretic, get rid of him. Or Kathy, what have you done? Like, it doesn't make sense. What Elijah's doing does not make sense. There's no just reason for being like, why on earth would you want to lie over that body so many times? Why, how's that going to bring him back to the dead? You're lying on top of a cold, dead body. But sure enough, he comes back. Um, the final sort of bit of a, a miracle I want to look at is in, is in Daniel chapter, chapter 3. And again, it's a story that totally amazes me to this day, but it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I've been thinking about this story all week, not just because their names are class to say all in a row, but because there's just something truly amazing about this story and about their faith. As the story goes, uh, Daniel is obviously really close to King Nebuchadnezzar and he picks these three guys to come into office and, and look after lands. But Nebuchadnezzar, he makes an idol. He says all the people you've, do you know, when all the instruments sound of every nation, you've got to worship this idol I've created. That's just what you've got to do. And then you've got the three musketeers in the corner. You've got Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and they're like, oh, we're not going to do that. And word gets back to the king that, that they're not forsaking their own God. They're not forsaking the God of Israel and paying homage to this image that Nebuchadnezzar's created. They're not doing it. So word gets back to him and he's so outraged that what he does is he says, um, this is what it says in verse 12. There are certain Jews in whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, 
pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love this. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? And I love the wee O, because just as you get the drama of what's happening in the scripture, isn't it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Isn't it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good. But if you don't worship it, you shall be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered to the king, and he said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God in whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he'll deliver us out of your hands. But if not, still remember, O king, that we will not serve your gods. Can you imagine being in that moment? Could you imagine being put in that scenario of someone saying to you, okay, you either cut all this Jesus stuff out and do what I tell you, otherwise I'm going to throw you in that massive fire. And it actually says when you read on in the story that it heated it seven times more than normal. That's so much so that when they closed them up and were taken into the fire. The men taken into the fire were actually consumed by it. It was that hot. I don't know what your faith journey has been like. I don't know what you faced, what trials and what difficulties you've been through. But I'll never ever forget there was one moment in my early years as a Christian. So I've already mentioned that my dad uh, had passed when I was younger. But my mum then had remarried and had this stepdad. So I was about eight coming 18 and I discovered who Jesus was for the very first time kind of like Rebecca I left school and didn't go straight to, to uni or college or anything like that I went and done an internship but I got accepted and it was great and I'd only been 8 months saved I'd only been 8 months a Christian and I got home and there was my stepdad sitting and my mum and they sat me down and they gave me an ultimatum and the ultimatum was this it was Josh Here's what you can do. You can either drop this Jesus thing, go back to tech and college, and we'll forget all about it. Or, if you're really determined you want to follow Jesus, you want to do this weird internship thing and go serve the king and play your trumpet, <laughs> it's going to cost you. Do you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to pay 120 quid to stay here every week. And if you don't pay your money, you're out in your ear. And just test us and see if we're lying. And I was like, what? That's my family. It's this moment. So when I read this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, nobody, nobody was throwing me into a fire. Like, thank goodness. Like, death wasn't imminent. But homelessness was, because I had no job, I had no source of income, I had no money. How was I going to get 120 quid a week to pay these people? I mean, I'd get a train 
do my internship and everything else that was unpaid. I went back, like Martha, I went back to Jesus and went, Jesus, you told me this would be okay. You told me you provide. What am I going to do? And right enough, every week, every week, the exact amount of money I needed, whether that was for my rent, for my trains, for my lunches, the exact amount to the penny, because it was still in the north at that point, the exact amount to the penny came in. I never went a day without anything. So much so that here we are, uh, years on, and my mum recently turned around to me and she said, do you know what, Josh? I was wrong. She's left my stepdad and different things. I went, what do you mean you're wrong? She goes, do you remember when you were on your internship and we tried to stop you by any means necessary? I went, yeah. She goes, I was wrong. There's something in what God is doing. Mum doesn't believe. She still won't believe at this point, but she can see what God does around her. It's amazing, is when you stand for your faith and when you stand for what Jesus is telling you, he doesn't abandon you. He doesn't leave you to your own devices. And when you read the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, yeah, they could put in the furnace and you could go, God was a bit late there because he, he didn't deliver them out. But when you read it, it says there was a fourth person seen in the fire with him and his appearance was like the son of the gods. And the wee secret that we all have and we all know is that that was Jesus because if if you want to know how that was Jesus, just read Genesis chapter 1. That's all you need to know because it says, And God said, let there be light. And he saw the light and the light was good. You get to verse 14, then he makes the sun and the moon. So what was the light in the world beforehand? It could only have ever been Jesus from the very beginning, the whole way down. Do you have this moment where he actually delivers these three guys from this fire? I love it in so many ways. I love their boldness to stand and say, this is the moment we're not going to turn away. We're going to stick firm to what we believe. And they come out of the fire, and next thing you know, the king's paying homage to their God. Three incredible passages of scripture. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Elijah raising the widow's son from the dead. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into a furnace and coming out. You couldn't make it up, could you? It doesn't make sense that it's all in there. But yet it's all true. And what amazes me most about two of those stories is because when you take the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you take the story of Elijah going over the sun and raising from the dead, there's a difference between that and the story of Lazarus. Well, number one, it was Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It was the son of God. He could do what he wanted. Because that's how he was. He had the power of everything. But those two other stories, they're Old Testament stories. That shouldn't work. That shouldn't make sense. Because these guys were under a law. They had 613 different commandments to follow. Here's, um, here's the thing. Jesus gave us two. Love God, love others. And we still managed to get that wrong. They had 613 Right? So the chances of them ever getting that right was never going to happen. Because actually, when you take the reality of it, Jesus actually said, Do you know what? If you even think about doing that thing, you've done it. Because it's in your mind. They were never going to achieve that. They were under condemnation, they were under sin. But yet, 
for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what changed? One moment of pure faith. Like when Jesus teaches, if only he had the faith as small as a mustard seed, what could we do with that? That was their mustard seed moment where they said, you know what, even though I'm standing in front of this fire, I'm not going to abandon God now. They still had to make sacrifices for their sin. They weren't free. And yet, they asked for nothing other than said to the king, if God wants to deliver us, God will deliver us. Their faith was astonishing. But what's the difference between that and, and for us now as Christians? Well, we know the story that we know it inside and out. It's our bread and butter. Jesus said in that, I am the resurrection and the life. He went and he got on a cross and three days later he got out of that grave. He said, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. So for those of us who have believed in him, we have everlasting life. But do you know what's even more amazing than that? This isn't just something you do to get your ticket in. No, 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 no. Being a Christian is so much more. John chapter 14. You get an amazing, amazing passage of scripture where we find the promise of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you. And the really important bit, and I will be in you. Go to chapter 16. If you skip over one or two pages. And you hit verse 6 and says, But because I've said these things, ye sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. What happened there? John 14, with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what we do sometimes in church? We change the Trinity. And we make the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. And what we start to do when we look at the New Testament, when we look at Acts, we start to value a book that they didn't have over the spirit that they did have. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't know our Bibles. I'm not negating that. No, 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 no. I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm saying is the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, what, who is it? Who is it that makes that transaction? For us, it's the Holy Spirit. Read Ezekiel. Promise of the valley of the dry bones. And God says, I promise to put your spirit in you. John chapter 14, we just read it. He will be in you, and so will I. So let's get that through, right? Jesus 613 laws in the Old Testament. He fulfilled every single one of them. Do you know what's amazing when you look at those? It's God said, if you do this, I'll bless you with this. That's the Old, Old Testament. It was made with, made with the people. We failed at it. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't. 
he completed everything. So he had everything heaven has to offer. And I heard a preacher put it like this. He got a picture of what God was doing. And he said, when we get into prayer meetings and we pray, more God, more God, more God, more God, he said, he's just got this picture of God standing in heaven going, what more, what more do you think I've got up here? What more do you think I'm hiding? What more do you think I haven't given you? I give you absolutely everything in Jesus. Absolutely everything you could ever need. Heaven's emptied. He lives in you. We get that. Most of us on Sunday morning, we come to communion and we read the same passage out of Corinthians every time. He says, in the same manner also, he took the cup on which he said, this is the New Testament in my blood. That word testament's interchangeable with the word covenant. The old, we had to do it. The new covenant, Jesus has done it. He says, just believe in me and I'll be in you. All of heaven is in you. So here's the thing. If Elijah could raise people from the dead and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego could go into the fire and not be burned and they didn't have all of heaven at their disposal, what much more does that mean we can do when we take what Jesus said in John 14 seriously? Do you know what? You'll do greater things than I've done when I go away. It's not that we're doing them. It's because Jesus and the Holy Spirit live and dwell within us. But what have we done as Christians? We've made church about going. We've made Christianity about going to church twice on a Sunday. We go in the morning, we go in the evening, we sit in the same space. We beat somebody if they sit in our spot. <laughs> it's my chair. <laughs> right? And we have our services. We do the same number of songs. We lift our offering at the same time. We do our preach at the same time. We say our amen and we go home. Yet we have so much more than Elijah had. And he's lying on top of people, raising them from the dead. So here's the question. When was the, honestly the last time you'd done something radical in your faith and full reliance of the Holy Spirit? When was the last time you actually engaged with him, asked him, what is it I should do? And done something that seems so illogical, it can only make sense in the eyes of Jesus. That's a hard question. I ask myself that question every single day. But whose way am I living? Mine or his? Because mine's comfortable, but his makes me so uncomfortable. I get into so many situations and do so many things that I think to myself, oh my days, how am I here? Jesus, please just do something. <laughs> All of heaven lives in you. What are you going to do with it? Or are we just going to continue to make church about retelling old stories and sitting in the same seat? Or are we actually going to grasp what happened in the book of Acts? Are we going to grasp the fact that Jesus isn't finished doing miracles? These aren't old stories that we just read to prop ourselves up. These are a reminder of who God is, who he still is, and just how much more he's going to do. Angela, amen. Jesus is still alive. He's still wanting to move. His spirit lives in you. So what are you going to do? Are you going to sit there? Are you going to stand up and say, God, take control of my life. Direct me. Show me what to do. Let me move in radical abundance of your goodness and your glory. Ephesians chapter 3 is absolutely amazing when you read it. That abundance 
that God has promised. That abundance lives in you. Stop praying more, God. Stop praying, God, fix this and start moving, realizing that all of heaven lives inside your soul because that is where Jesus is. If we get that, that changes everything. We won't just come and play church games. I don't know about you, but I've been in church so long. It feels so long. I know people in this room are in church a lot longer than me. But I'm so tired of just playing church. Where we come in, we're like, well, brother, how are you? Well, sister, good to be in the house. And we play these church games. And we put on these faces and we say, do you know what? I'm good. How are you? Someone goes, yeah, I'm good too. But meanwhile, your whole world's burning down around us, like inside. And all you need is this miracle moment where you need Jesus to show up like he did for Lazarus and just do something. What would it look like if we stopped playing church games and actually came in through that door and said, do you know what? I'm so broken, but I need Jesus. Would you pray with me? Do you know what? I'm ill. Would you pray for healing? And here's the thing. It's not just for us in here. It's for those out there those out there. He brought the disciples in. He sent them out. He sent the 72 out. It multiplied. It went forward. If the gospel doesn't travel, what you're listening to and what you're preaching and what you're feeding yourself is not the gospel. Because the gospel can't be contained. His spirit can't be contained. It's not for one place, one moment or one time. It's for everyone in every moment. Calling as Christians is to carry that spirit that he's given us and do radical things. Like when Paul gets shipwrecked in Malta, the snake comes up out of the fire, he shakes it off. Miracle after miracle after miracle. God has not ceased doing miracles. We have just stopped asking. That's the truth. So would you stand with me? And you guys come on back up. So here's what I want to do. My final question, I know I've said it before, is as our life as Christians just become about filling seats, and doing church games, I, I think God is worth so much more. So how I'm going to ask us to respond, and I know we're like, you know, just come to the front. It's a really awkward thing, but I totally believe God still does miracles. I still believe he raises people from the dead. I still believe he takes away sickness. I still be- believe he provides. Do you know there was one Sunday, I had £6,000 on a credit card, I was panicking, going, what am I going to do? And I walked into a church where I had never been before, and somebody came from the front and told me that while they were putting their makeup on that morning, they seen my face, and they just felt that God wanted them to come to me and pray into my finances. I sat in the car before I went in, going, God, you've just got to do something. I didn't get six grand walking out. That would have been even better. But I was there with a promise the promise. And that's what he's given us. He's given us the promise of the spirit that he's put in us for everything we could ever need. He still raises people from the dead. He still heals the sick and he still provides. So here's how I love us to respond. I'm not going to ask anybody to come to the front. I'm going to go to the back, right? If you need a miracle, you just need Jesus for healing I want to pray with you and believe he's going to heal it. If you need Jesus to move in, in finances, come on, let's pray over it. I've seen him do it. If you just need Jesus to do a miracle over a broken relationship, I've seen him do it. My family was so fractured, but now they're whole. We have Christmas together again. I can see God doing things, and he will never, ever, ever say no to his children. Sometimes he shows up late because he's something better in mind. 
but it's never no. So I want to pray with you. But maybe you have nothing wrong and you're just like, I just want to, I just want more of the Holy Spirit. I just want to move more radically into what God's called me to. Let's pray for that as well. And do you know what? Maybe, here's the thing, maybe you've got absolutely nothing wrong or you think I have nothing I need prayer for. I have a f- friend, their mom and dad are, are apostolic pastors and her mom has this thing. She says, do you know what? See when there's people wanting to pray for you and pray in your life, whether you have something wrong with you or not, just go. Because you see the moment when things get tough and there's nobody around you, you'll wish you had somebody to pray with you. So take the fuel when you can get it. So I'd encourage you, just, just come and be blessed and be a blessing to the others. And who knows, maybe God will do a miracle. I still believe he will. I still believe if you have a sickness, you'll walk out tonight healed. I still believe that if you're in need, you'll walk out with provision. I still believe if you're not a Christian, you can walk out with all of heaven in your heart. By doing one simple thing and saying, God, I give you it all. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Pentecostal church, come on, amen. Spirit's been given to us, come, Holy Spirit.